Now, if you have your Bibles, turn them open to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Our focus uh, this afternoon is verse 4, 5, and 6. And this should complete our uh, study of Psalm 1. Verse 4, the Word of God says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, the approach that I've been taking with Psalm 1 is somewhat of a didactic approach, more of a a teaching um, approach, sort of setting a counseling um, scenario. That is, how would we take Psalm 1 and counsel ourselves with it. How, do, how would we come to Psalm 1 as a reader, as a child of the king, and, and begin to just digest the psalm, benefit from it in my own personal devotion life? That's the approach that I've taken. I hope you have found it beneficial. As we look at verse 4, 5, and 6, I mean, it's clear... It, the point is clear. There is a, 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 a stark difference between the godly and the ungodly. And those two are not inter, to intermingle together, so to speak. And even that will be the case on the day of judgment. But that's not simply, it's the simple truth, but there's some more There's more here that we can glean and benefit from by just taking a little bit of a dive into the verses. Now, the first thing that I want to bring out is in verse 4, there certainly is a common understanding that the ungodly do not possess the wherewithal, the grace, if you will, to persevere. That's verse 4. The wicked are not so, the text says. Well, what does it mean by are not so? Well, we're to take that verse and then read, uh, go, go back to verses 1, 2, and 3, and we're to identify all of those ways in which we're supposed to be the happy, the blessedness, uh, the stability, the success, the practice of meditation, the prosperity, the vitality, all of those things that describe the godly or describe the, the favored, describe the blessed or the happy, well, it's not so for the wicked. Now, the wicked are those that are not blessed. They are not the blessed ones. They are not the favored ones. They are the ones that do not have a relationship with God and are not favored by him. They're they're considered to be unbelievers. Unbelievers do not, it's not that they may not believe that God does not exist. There's a lot of people that live all around you that believe God exists. And that will tell you, yes, I believe that there's a God. And I believe that, yes, there's even a judgment day. But they're not in favor with that God. They have not put a faith and trust in the Messiah, the one that God has sent in order to reconcile sinners to himself. So they're not in favor with God. They're not in some uh, covenantal relationship that rests upon the foundation of grace. That's not, that's not who they are. That's not what they're about. 
They are the ones that are choose, that have chosen to walk according to their own ways. Now, this is, this is the truth of history. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And, and we can never discount the way the Bible is assembled and put together. There are only two lines of people. There's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's it. There's the family of God and the family of Adam, the family of Satan. There are those that are in God's favor by covenant. That's the covenant of grace. All those that are in the covenant of grace have favor with God. They have favor with God. And how do we know they have favor with God? Because the scriptures tell us they have favor with God. In this passage right here, it talks about their prosperity, their fruitfulness, their vitality, their, their, their perseverance, if you will, in, in all of the things that pertain to life, peace, happiness, goodness, the, the, the commitment to, to the good things of life. Even, you know, and that includes serving our neighbor as ourselves. Well, the wicked are not so. Again, like Jesus, Psalm 1 is a didactic psalm and it sets forth a contrast. It uses, it uses the instrument of comparison and contrast. It's a very powerful teaching tool, isn't it? And it's, it, it helps us. When we compare and contrast, it helps us grasp what we're to do or what we're to believe or what we're not to do and what we're not to believe. But we're talking about in verse 4 that the, the, the wicked do not persevere. They're not stable. Now, what do I mean? Like the verse says, right? The wicked are not so. They're nothing like the favored. Now, look, both can go through trials. I mean, we don't look at people that go through afflictions and hardships and say, oh, an unbeliever. That's not how you do it. It's how you go through the trial that matters. It's how you press forward and onward in affliction or, or personal difficulties or even, even physical ailments. It's how, it's the attitude, it's the zest of life. It's how you approach all of these things. That is going to be the ultimate difference. Well, the ungodly don't, don't perform like the godly. There's a, a, the inability to maintain happiness and, and even usefulness in some of the severest of trials. And that's why you will find many, many bitter people. You know, bitterness is a poison of the soul. I mean, a lot of times people become bitter because they felt like God are, has dealt them the wrong hand of life and they had terrible parents or terrible siblings or a terrible experience or whatever the case may be and, and they never overcome that and they, the rest of their lives maintain this kind of, you know, woe is me attitude and it destroys not only them, I mean, it destroys them physically. A bitter person ages faster than a, than a one that understands that God has ordained all things for their good. 
it deteriorates their their, their skin, their facial features, their strength, it sucks the life out of them. That's what, <clears throat> hold your place there. I want to turn over to Proverbs. There's one reason I recommend um, Proverbs to everyone is because it is, it is, I mean, it is so practical. Look at chapter three. Let's just start reading at verse one. I'm going to read down probably eight verses. It says, my son, do not forget my teaching but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace will be added or they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so that you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and men. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. We can stop there. Notice, do not, verse three, do not let kindness and truth leave you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Whatever you have to do, make sure you, you don't lose them. Fixate them on your person and in your person so that, that they will be useful to you. Again, Proverbs three is the same thing that I've already talked about. There's only well, one way of favor and blessedness. And you can say, well, there's a million other different ways, but there's only really, you know, two ways. There's man's way, and that's multiple, and then there's God's way, and that's singular. God's way is his way. It's, you know, it, it, and it's, it's simply understood to be his way. There's no way around. I mean, there's no confusing it. It's his way. But the ungodly, as, as chapter Psalm 1 verse 4 says, well, the ungodly are not like any of this. They're not favored. They're not prospering. They're, they're not full of life. That's vitality. No, the zest of life has passed them on. They're bitter. They're angry. Uh, or, or at least they're, they're like uh, EKG. They're high one minute, low the next minute. I mean, they are subject to their circumstances. We should not be like that. We don't need to be like that. We may have a very high moment. And of course, that's a blessed thing. That's a good thing. We can enjoy it, but we know it comes from the hand of the Lord. And just as we had this high moment, the Lord may take us to a very low moment in order to teach us things, to sort of solidify the thankfulness, to root out any of these other heart sins that need to be addressed or can only be addressed by difficulties. Right? Some things you just don't, can't spray away. You got to scrub them off. And the Lord treats us this way. 
This doctrine of perseverance is important because we believe perseverance is a grace. What do we mean by grace? Well, we mean it's a gift. That is, we don't persevere in our own strength. We don't persevere in our own knowledge and understanding. We persevere because of the grace of God, because because he is working in us and because we have his favor. That's grace. Listen to, uh, let me read it because it addresses this in the confession of faith on the chapter of perseverance. All right, listen to this paragraph. There's only three. It says, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, sanctified by spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. They're kept. They're favored. But shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. That is, there is that God is working in us is according to our constitution. Same thing I mentioned this morning. Our intellect, our will, our emotions are all involved in this persevering grace. God uses, he uses his word to change our mind. As we come, as we gain understanding, he uses this understanding to address our will and our emotions. We conform those things. You know, it's like, you know what? I used to enjoy this. I don't any longer because I've learned that it's, it's, it's an abomination to God. Therefore, I'm going to wean myself off of this. I'm going to deny it. I'm going to reject it. I'm going to kill it. When I think about it, when I laugh at it, somebody tells a joke and I laughed at it, I'm going to rebuke myself. I'm going to rebuke myself with the word of God. I'm going to tell myself that God's word speaks against this. Now, there are a number of ways you can teach yourself to do this. You know, when you ride by um, when you ride by um, false places of worship, I mean, I, I pray God shut them down. When you ride by an abortion clinic, pray God shut it down. When you ride by an apartment complex that is known for its drug use and crime, what? Pray God get rid of it. Get rid of the element. Why do we do that? Or what what would be a reason to do that? Well, because we're training ourselves that we do live in God's world. This is, there are paths that we must take. There are, there's a path that's been trodden down by the righteous, and that's the path that you and I have to take. That's the favored path. That's the blessed path. That's the path of life and perseverance. And there is no other path. You cannot trailblaze your own path in the kingdom of God. You have to walk the same path that all the other righteous have walked. If you don't walk that path, you you cannot consider yourself legitimately a son of the kingdom. The second paragraph, it says, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, 
but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, and abiding of the Spirit, and of the seed of God in them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arise from all of the certainty and infallibility thereof. I mean, notice what he says. Notice, why are we held, and why is it, are we incapable of fully falling away? Because we're held by the unchangeable love of God. Now, how does this look? I mean, you say, well, I don't know that. How do I know that? How can I know that? Well, he says upon the efficacy and the merit of the intercession of Christ, Christ is praying for us. So God uses that. The abiding of the spirit in us, testifying that we are children of the king testifying to us the word of God. When we, when we violate the word of God, what does our conscience tell us? You know you should keep that. You know you shouldn't break that. The Spirit's working in us. He says, in the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace, which is what? Grace. The nature of the covenant of grace is not a covenant of works, is it? The nature of the covenant of grace is all free grace by the love of God, by the merit of Jesus Christ. Now, there's the one that gets us, paragraph three. Nevertheless, that is, even though these things are true, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of the corruption remaining in them, the neglect of the means of their preservation, means of grace, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure, grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their conscience wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. David, King David, He, he confesses all of those things. In fact, go read Psalm 51. What does it say? Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, Lord, work in me so that I may teach other sinners your ways. He did a great, great harm to himself, to his family. He, he scandalized the name of God. He... he he brought shame upon the church of God. So, but they, so again, Psalm 1 is addressing here, the wicked is like none of this. And notice, the, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. That's the persevering part. That's the, they are not stable. The reason you are stable is because you are held by God's grace. You're held by the infallible love of God. He holds on to you. You're held by the intercession of Jesus Christ. He sits at the Father's right hand and he prays for you. You're held by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. You're held by the covenant of grace and its nature and the promises and the benefits that flow out of that covenant. You're held by the means of grace. 
That's favor, isn't it? That you can come and partake of worship, you can come and partake of church membership, you can come and partake of church life, and it actually be meaningful. Some people say, well, I don't get anything out of it, so therefore I think I'm going to go fishing, or I'm going to go do whatever. Why? Well, they're not favored. They're not getting anything out of it. It's not seen as effectual in their lives. It doesn't mean anything. It means something to you because, beloved, you are the favored one of God. And God is using all of these things in your life to have you persevere in these blessings and benefits in this vitality of life. Not so that you can be bitter and angry and and malevolent and any of those things. No, because you will display the trophy, the, the, the being a trophy of God's grace. I could easily be an angry person. I could easily be a cynic. I think if I were not a Christian, I think I would want to be a cynic. I think I'd be good at being cynical. I think I'd be good at making fun of everything and everybody. But I can't. I can't be cynical when I know that God is the God of this world. The God of the Bible is the one that created it. And he created it good. And he has a purpose for it. There's meaning to it. And he has even caused many, 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 many to benefit of that meaningfulness. And therefore it matters. And it does mean something. Because God is. Right? So that's verse four. When you think about, um, I mean, there are any number of, 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 of passages, but the point is that we are held by the power of God and the ungodly are not. I mean, in essence, 1 Peter 1, 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith, through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. That means you don't have this blessedness, this covenantal benefit without faith. It is through the faith, it's through the means that God has ordained for us to partake of these blessings and be blessed and benefits. There's a path to these things and 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 this is how it ordinarily works and anything outside of that is considered extraordinary and not something that we should focus on it's amazing to me how people fixate upon the extraordinary things and say oh well, that's got you know make them ordinary we say well god can save you know infants in the womb i'm like i, I agree But just because God can do that and does do that doesn't mean that you now breathing air shouldn't put your faith and trust in him and walk in his ways. And that's where the hyper-Calvinism takes a big, big turn into error. Well, if you're God's elect, no matter what happens, you're just going to wake up in heaven one day. That's literally what they believe. That, that a Muslim, practicing Muslim, can die and wake up in heaven because he is God's elect. Now, that's some dangerous theology. And it's wrong. Because God has ordained us to be saved ordinarily through faith and the practice of the word of God. Amen. 
And that's the ordinary way. You demonstrate your election and make your calling sure, if you will. The Bible talks about, um, even in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12, and John the Baptist is preaching, he's talking to the ungodly Pharisees, and, and here's what he says of them. He says, his, being God's winnowing fan, is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, meaning that they lack substance and stability in life because they're, well, they're unbelievers. They're walking not according to faith, but according to their works. What about verse 5? Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. This verse not only has some future tense connotation to it, that is, that's the way it's going to be on the day of judgment, but it also has an immediate context, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. That is, there is a true, legitimate, covenantal, and spiritual moral segregation. We go all the way back up to verse 1, right? Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. I can't tell you how many Christians... And I would say, I would say good Christians, legitimate Christians that have made that, that have, I, I would say are part of that paragraph three, they have made their lives hell by attaching themselves to the wrong people. I mean, again, I, I, forgive me for my experience in life, but this is all I have. It's like my daughters. I've always told them, you married the wrong person, you could easily waste and throw away 10 years of your life, easy. I'm, that doesn't mean there's not good children or anything like that come out of it, but you know what I'm saying. It matters who you're connected with and who you're, and the reasons you're connected. And there is legitimate separation. And this separation is twofold. It's covenantal and moral. When I say covenantal, I mean, obviously, by our relationship with God. We have a covenantal relationship with God. We're believers. What are we doing hanging out with unbelievers? What are we doing? What are we doing taking our marching orders and habits and everything else, interests and likes, from unbelievers? That's one. Number two, there's a moral separation. We're not the same. And it's not something that we take credit for, like I said this morning in the sermon, but it's something that God has put there for our benefit. It's there for your benefit, brothers and sisters. It's there for your perseverance. And we should not, we certainly should not want to make our lives harder than they need to be. Harder than God has ordained them to be. Because again, we don't know what tomorrow holds, do we? We don't. None of us do. But what we do know about tomorrow is that whatever I face, whatever I experience, whatever I go through, I will have been given the grace to 
be the fortifying grace to persevere through it. That doesn't mean I know everything because I'm going to have to more than likely learn a bunch of lessons along the way. Now, I say, when I say learn a bunch of lessons, I'm not saying it's about theology. I know a lot of theology, and you do too. But remember, knowledge and wisdom are not the same. You have to be knowledgeable to be wise, but you have to add another element to that knowledge, and that's practice. And that's where wisdom is unfolded. And sometimes there's a learning process there involved in our practice. And God is about growing his children up in the Lord. That's part of the intercession of Jesus Christ. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And as God has ordained... Say, he's ordained your trial. Jesus is praying for you in the midst of your trial. He's praying for you. He's praying that the trial that his father has ordained for your life, he's praying that you persevere in it. He's praying that you learn wisdom along the way. He's praying that you make application to the word of God. He's praying that you, even the brothers and sisters come along beside you, that you'd be recipient, uh, receptive to their help and grace. He's praying for you to benefit in that trial that the father has ordained for you to have. And, and, and he has promised to keep all that the Father has given him. So his prayers are efficacious. When he prays, Father, hold on to this one. Father, persevere. The Lord is answering, the, God is answering the Lord's prayers. His prayers are answered. There's not a prayer that Jesus utters that the Father doesn't answer. Why? Because it's part of his exaltation. It's part of his exaltation. He's been exalted high above heaven and earth in order that he might be glorified. And Jesus, to be glorified, can't lose one. One. If he lost one, it'd be a failure. But he will not lose one. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me, I know them, and I shall lose none of them. The point is, though, the ungodly don't know the shepherd's voice. The ungodly didn't know the shepherd's voice. And that's why so many people, I mean, I think that's one reason God allows some of these cult pastors, these pseudo-Christian churches and ministries to exist. Because honestly, it's not that the elect are deceived, it's that the, the hypocrites are deceived. Because that's not the voice of Christ they're listening to. That's nothing more than, than, than hum, human motivation and you know, human prosperity. Prosperity on a human level and all of these things. Not according to the favor and blessing and covenant of God. So... Again, one of the characteristics of the, the wicked is that they... Wants they will not stand in the judgment. They're not, and what does it mean? I mean, look, here's the way you need to see judgment. There is a day of judgment. But all along the way in people's lives are judgments. 
when it says it won't stand in it, they don't benefit from them. They don't benefit from these judgments, these temporal judgments. These judgments have the essence of making their hearts harder, making them more bitter, making them just harder people because they can't stand in the, they have nothing holding them up. There's no persevering grace in them. Not like it is with God's favored. Now the point of the, the Psalm, I mean, as we talk about these things, if you're here tonight and you're sitting here talking about, I mean, you're sitting here thinking, well, that's awful. Then you would be right. And hopefully you would be saying, I need to make sure I'm a child of God. I need to make sure I'm a believer. I want to make sure I'm in covenant with God. I want to make sure I'm walking in the covenant of grace. I want to make sure that I'm favored. I want to make sure that I'm meditating on his law day and night. I want to make sure that I possess this vitality and perseverance and all these things. I want to make sure that I'm not walking in the path of men, but on the path of God. That's the purpose of it. That's exactly, but again, the ungodly boast. They boast, right, about their own strength that they don't possess. That they continually get washed away, tossed to and fro. And all of these temporal judgments, if they can't stand in these temporal judgments, beloved, they certainly will not stand in the ultimate judgment, right? Now, we never passed every judgment with flying colors. Don't beat yourself on the back. Don't pat yourself on the back. We never pass every trial with flying colors. We're, we're weak. We're, we have many flaws, even in, this, in the grace, the state of grace that we're in. But we pass, and we pass based upon the efficacy of Christ and his sustaining us, not because of us. But we utilize the means of grace. That means we don't. Do we ever utilize the means of grace perfectly? No. How many times you ever offered up a perfect prayer? How many times you ever offered, I mean, how many times you're short-sighted in your prayer? How many times do you repeat yourself in your prayers? When, you know, have you broadened and practiced your prayer life? Practicing your prayer life. Understanding of how to pray for other things and for other people and how to pray for them in certain situations. No, we don't practice these things perfectly. We practice them imperfectly, but it's Christ that makes them effectual for us. That we persevere even in the midst of, of weakness, we persevere. Wow, we're favored. We're blessed of God. And those things even cause us to want to worship and praise him more and more and more. We don't stand by our own strength. So there's just no benefit. There's just um, the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Brother, listen, there's separation here. I mean, so the church has to guard its membership. The church can't, you know, the church ought to take a profession of faith seriously. 
I mean, if you incorporate unbelievers into the church, how long will it be before you have no church? You know, it's just, it's like the characteristics of your family. You know, you, you establish traditions. You get married, you, you establish traditions. Some of those you bring in from, from each side of the family. You incorporate it into your own family of, of how you're going to do things and whatnot. And as you have children and you grow those children up, you what? You, you're, you basically are training these children in these traditions and how your Christian home is going to be and how it's going to look. Well, if, I mean, again, why? Because that's part of the family, and if that's what a church is. It's a family that's been given a set of doctrines and beliefs that they should hold to, and they hold to it by the grace of God. They, they are upon the foundation of grace, but if you incorporate people into that family that are not of that grace, it won't be long before they will not be a family. Same thing's happening to Nations. Same principle. You incorporate a third world into a first world country and it won't be long and it's no longer a first world country. It becomes the third world. I mean, it's, these are moral maxims and principles. This is what the psalm is saying, that there is no, there is, there's no reason for the righteous and the ungodly to assemble together. How can two walk together lest they be in agreement, the Bible says. And it's the same way in a, particularly a marriage. It's very, very hard for a husband and wife to make the kind of strides they need to make in a Christian home if they're not on the same page. And, and that has to be set that has to be kind of set in stone before there's a marriage. But even sometimes, even when it is set in stone, people change. And people make decisions that, and, and choices like, I no longer want to do that. I no longer, that's not what I'm about anymore. And they leave. And Paul addresses that in Corinthians 7. Now notice verse 6. This is be the end of the psalm. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Why does the way of the wicked perish? It's sort of a comparison here. Look at the verse, and look, this is how the verse is kind of structured. For the, low, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Since the Lord knows the way of the righteous, they persevere. But the way of the wicked will perish. They don't persevere because the Lord does not know them in a covenantal way. Do you see that? You can see how verse 6 encapsulates the whole thing. Okay? Why does the Lord know the way of the righteous? What does he mean by that? Well, he's ordained it. There is only but one way of the righteous to, path for the righteous to take. There's one voice they listen to. The voice of the shepherd they know him. He knows them. The Lord has set the path before his people to walk. He knows the way of the righteous. He knows the path that they should be on because they are favored. 
because they are blessed, because they, they are making use of the means of grace. This is that path. All of the things that I've mentioned, that's the path. Matthew 7, verse 13, it's the same thing Jesus was talking about. Enter the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, but there is a way, what? That leads to life. But the way of the wicked will perish. Why? Because they're going their own way. They're not going the Lord's way. They're not walking the path that has been ordained for them to walk before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, it's, um, there's a statement in Judges, and it serves as the theme of the whole book of Judges. And, it, and that, that statement is this, and they did what was right in their own eyes. Now, the book of Judges is a book of cyclical judgments and deliverances. I think seven. I could be wrong. Don't hold me to that. Cyclical judgments and deliverances. And the reoccurring statement that leads them into judgment of God bringing judgment on them is they did what's right in their own eyes. Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is ways of death. You need to memorize that. Death is the opposite of covenant blessing and vitality and prosperity. Death of the soul, death of the mind, death of, of vitality, death of, I mean, it's, it's the loss of the zest of life and ultimate death and well, thrown into the lake of fire. You know, just rehearsing a little bit, verse five, and I want to make this comment because I think it bears needing to be seen in our culture. We are living in unprecedented violence. And you ladies, you have to always certainly be on your guard. I mean, even us men, but nevertheless, it's unprecedented violence. Because we have come to the place where there are some people that have proven to be incompatible to any culture not fit for culture, not fit for safe culture, not fit for, for morality, not fit for law-abiding, not fit for safety, not fit to live with others. That's a truth. And the Bible talks about these people. What happens when that threshold is transgressed? There's nothing left but those people to be wiped away because they refuse to live under God's moral law and God's moral 
law as it concerns culture and people. When you get down to verse 6, again, there's a way which seems right to men, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Why? Because the way of the righteous is, is set forth in this book. He knows the way. He wrote the way. He's prescribed the way. He's, he's, he's blazed the way. The way is, listen, the way of the godly is well-trodden. Well-trodden, it's beat down. You don't have to look for it. It's right in there. It's right there. Why? Because ever since the fall, anyone who went to heaven walked that path. And that's the only path. And when we are dead and gone, that path is still going to be the only path. If we live, if the Lord tarries and we enter into the, the you know, here in the Star Trek multi-worlds, it'll still be the way. There's only one way to heaven. And maybe, I, maybe this is out of place, but I'm going to say it anyway. I've been listening to all of the, the rigmarole of aliens and everything else. I have been, <laughs> I have spent hours listening to podcasts people have sent me that have, listen to me. If those things are true, there is no God. You understand me? If those things are true, there is no God. Now you have to start thinking like a Christian. The first and ultimate thing you need to ever ask yourself is, does this belief, does this idea contradict my Bible? And brothers and sisters, if you're not willing to do that, I, I, are you a Christian? Well, maybe you're a Christian, but you're not a good one. Okay? And you're setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment. Nothing can contradict this book and this book still be true. You gotta understand that. It, look, if it's wrong, all of it's wrong. And that's how committed we have to be to the path, to the way. It's an uncompromising way, beloved. The Lord knows the way of the righteous because he has set that way. He has put that way out there, but the way of the wicked comes to nothing. You know, there have been all kinds of fancy ideas throughout the world, human history, and they're not going to go away. They're not going to go away. There's all kinds of ways people grasp and hold on to in order to somehow think, well, if, you know, uh, God is not real. You know, they all tried that with the intelligent design. It was a clever way to get these intelligent design people in the church, never mentioning the God of Scripture. I mean, well, we're talking about intelligent design. Well, then basically what they did was they unfolded. Well, we're talking about aliens. They're the real gods. That's the message. If that's true, you and I are wasting our time right now. And that's the fact. 
That's how, that's black and white. It's either true and we're wasting our time and we're a bunch of idiots. Or they're liars, deceived, but nevertheless lying. And we continue to plot the course on the path of the righteous. And recognize these things are going to come and go, but we continue to stay the course. Let's pray. Father, we are asking you to continue your favor toward us. And Lord, take this psalm and Lord, how crudely it's been presented. But nevertheless, it's presented in faith. Lord, and the trust that you will take and use it for our edification and growth wherever we are. Father, we take great delight in knowing that your word is true. And keep us, O oh Lord, from being absorbed and in, in, into the, the cultural philosophies that are permeating all around us. Lord, let us not fall for them, but let us begin to be discerning and wise and ask good questions, Lord. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.